Well, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Doug Tharp, um, coming over from Village 7, and it's really good to be with you this morning. I've got a lot of friends uh, and family, my parents, here at this church. Uh, I love Westside, and I want you to know that um, as a church, as leaders, and I know uh, church as a whole, that uh, we love you guys, that Village 7 prays for you regularly. Uh, you're in the newsletters we send out. You're in our, uh, our staff prayer times. Uh, you're on, on my heart, and so I'm so thankful for this church. I'm thankful for the love that you guys have for Jesus, and we continue to pray for the impact that you all have in, on this side of Colorado Springs, uh, the communities that you're in, and uh, it's just a joy to be with you this morning. Um, we're going to be continuing in Colossians, Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. So hear God's word. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. This is God's word. So I don't know about the rest of you, but sometimes when I sing some of the worship songs that we have, uh, they can kind of haunt me a little bit. And for me, one of those that I struggle to sing, even though I love it so much, is Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And I know many of you are familiar with the words, but when we get to that third verse, and it says, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace, now like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. And then we sing this, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And I often get stuck there as we're singing. You know, I don't make a big scene in front of everyone. And I continue to sing along with it. But in that moment, I often think about my own heart. And I'm overwhelmed with this conviction of, yes, you are prone to wander. And you are definitely feeling that. And it happens too often in your life. And how on earth can I finish? Here's my heart. Take and seal it when I know like who I really am. And I'm not sure about you, but when I think about myself in, in that situation, usually I finish it and we just kind of move on with, you know, the service. Uh, and I don't really spend time dealing with that, that feeling that I have, with that, that overwhelming sense of, of failure that I feel that I am sometimes when I know where my heart really is. When I think about the contrast of someone who really loves Jesus and I know that I, that I should trust him, and, and much of the time I do, and I've seen my life grow and, and change and be transformed, and yet I'm, I'm prone to wander. And that is not pleasant, and that can really chew me up on the inside. Well, here in Colossians, Paul is writing to the local church at Colossae and, and some of the churches around it, and he really answers this objection. 
He gives us a reason that when we feel our hearts wandering, that when we see ourselves straying, that when we try to come to grasps with this duality of, yes, I love Jesus, but why is it so hard to trust him? Reasons that we can trust him. And that's what he addresses here in this letter. So first, we see that Christ points out, he reminds us, he implores us to believe that Christ is our bond. Christ is our bond. Paul kind of continues his train of thought from the end of, first, uh, of Colossians chapter 1 with the phraseology he uses in verse 1 here. And so if you've been here and you kind of remember uh, what you talked about last week, that Paul is in the context of talking about struggling, in the context of talking about suffering, and what the church is going through, and how it is under attack, what you are to do. And it comes back to Christ being the center, the foundation, the firstborn of creation. And he ends in verse 29, for this I strive or struggle or toil or labor. It's for these things, for, for his energy that I'm able to accomplish these things. And then he starts in, in verse one here. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. He uses the same word to bring those thoughts together. So he's talking about the mission and the word going to the Gentiles and how we are called to struggle, to strive, to labor. And then he turns his attention to the local church. And he says, and I want you to know that I struggle. I am in great conflict. I'm in an unending war in my prayer life, in my mind, in my heart for all of you. I want you to know that that I am in conflict for you, that, that you are on my hearts constantly. And why does he tell them this? Why does he, why does he start with that? Is it just kind of an overdramatic Pauline introduction? Like, hey guys, I'm about to get to like some important stuff, and so I want to hype you up by using some really big words. No. Instead, he's telling them that the church, that the individuals, many of which he has never met face to face, that he is warring internally and in his prayer life for them. And why? Because there is an enemy. There is a danger. There is a threat to the body of believers. And that enemy is coming from spiritual attack. The enemy is coming from the culture and world around them. And that enemy is waged in their own hearts as they struggle. And he's saying the, the conflict is real And I am engaged in this with you, and you need to understand there's a warning. In fact, in verse 29, what is one of the things he says? He says, it's him we proclaim warning everyone. And so the reason he wrote this letter to the the local church there and the churches around it is because there is something very real that is happening, that is pressuring them, that is drawing them, that wants their hearts to wander from Christ. And so Paul says, I am fighting, I am battling for you. And what is his desire? Well, we see that as we jump into the second verse. My desire is, verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. And that's like a really small, simple phrase that could be easy to gloss over. But I think it's mission critical to what Paul is saying both about the church and how we understand our relationship to Christ and how it really matters. That Christ is our bond. 
He says, my desire for you guys, you're in battle. You're in warfare. Like things are, are going to be difficult for you. But I want you to be encouraged. I want your hearts to be encouraged. And notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say, I want your minds to be encouraged. I want you to have a full understanding that makes you encouraged. I want you to have knowledge that makes you encouraged. He's about to address all those things. He says, I want your hearts to be encouraged. And this this little section can be a little bit difficult for us in our modern day lingo because when we throw around things like heart and love, it has been so diluted by culture, by uh, even within the church that when we talk about I love you or I, want, I have a heart for you, that what those things mean are often not what they're supposed to mean. When Paul says, I want your hearts to be encouraged, he's not merely saying, I want you to have a feeling of comfort. That, guys, things are going to get tough, but I want this feeling to swell up in you. And if you can hold on to that feeling, then everything's going to be okay. That's not what heart meant in the vernacular that he's using. In fact, the word heart, probably a better word, one that's also difficult for us to relate to in this context, is bowels, right? But it's weird to say, I want your bowels to be encouraged, okay? (laughs) We'll leave that to some of the commercials we have. A better word, I think, in our vernacular, instead of saying, I want your heart to be encouraged, I want your core to be encouraged. I want the deep, innermost part of you to find hope, to find comfort, to find peace. If you think about it like this, if you have a, a big circle that we call knowledge, and in the middle of that circle is a heart. And what Paul is talking about here is that what we know becomes what we believe, That what we say we understand actually impacts the way that we live. Because when things flow out of our heart, they're not simply flowing out of feeling. They're they're flowing out of core truths that we have come to embrace so deeply that it impacts the way that we live and respond to stress and grief and pain and hardship and suffering. And Paul is saying, I want that innermost being of you. I want the truth that you know about the gospel, about Jesus, the things that you have learned. I want those to be so deeply within you that when the going gets tough, it flows. It's natural that the knowledge that you have becomes practical. And notice that he says to do that, that your hearts be encouraged is not in the individual context, but in the context of the body of believers. He doesn't say, so go off by yourself, get your facts straight, fill your prayer journals, fill your sermon notes, think about it a lot and you're going to be okay. He says, I want your hearts to be encouraged being knit together, that you are all to be knit together. And the word knit is a good one, particularly if you think of it from the context of like a surgeon taking two things that have been separated and binding them, knitting them, sewing them, bringing them back together so that they're one thing. Other words that that work well there are being held together like a glue or being united. But one of my favorite ones is being welded together. That's the imagery, that's the word that Paul is using there, that you as a body of believers, that the local church is to be so close to one another as we find our hearts encouraged as what we know becomes what we believe, that the enemy can't just yank you apart, that you're stuck that way. And that can be difficult because sometimes we're stuck with people we don't like very much or who we're in conflict with. 
And Paul doesn't say, you know, be knit together, be welded together, um, have your hearts encouraged, knit together in love with people you're really getting along with right now. He says, no, be compacted together in love. And then we have the love word. And what do we do with that? And we know that, again, he's not just talking about a feely emotion. He's not talking about just love for the oppressed and the hurt uh, and social justice. He's not just talking about love uh, in the sense of equality and just getting everyone on the same page. There's a lot of different ways you can take love and what it looks like. It doesn't mean love in that I'm giving enough of my time or my money, and so I'm doing my part. But love here is that agape love, the Greek word agape that is used in scripture always in the context of a sacrificial love that is so passionate that it seeks the good of those around you, even if they're your enemies. A sacrificial love that pursues those around you even when they're hard to love, even when they're difficult to care about, even when they're unlovely or unattractive. So let me read that again and put this together in your mind and in your heart. He says, my desire is that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love. What is the love that binds the people at this local church together? What's the sacrificial love that comes from understanding the love of Jesus? Jesus is their bond. He is their glue. He is the surgeon that knits them together. He is the welder that makes it so that when you're in deep, authentic community that I know that some of you have, have experienced or even experiencing now, you don't know where one piece of the body ends and the next piece begins. That the weld is so complete that the metal is one strong piece and not two separate ones just kind of hanging on by a thread. And if you think about this in the context that he's writing, that the church is under attack from within and from without, this is critical. Because if if you're not bound together, what happens when that prone to wander starts to happen? It's easy to isolate ourselves. And say, I'm either going to be rejected, or they're not going to really understand, or they're not going to care about me, or this is too intense to share, and I'm not sure what to do with it, and so I isolate myself. And what does isolation always do? It puts us in a play of despair, of loneliness, of hopelessness, and it is that much easier for us to fall again. The reason I keep referencing and will kind of continue referencing uh, the hymn, Uh, and talking about what it means to be prone to wander of of come thou fount is because the author of it had a similar journey. Robert, Robert, Robertson, that's a fun name to say. Okay. Robert Robinson, who wrote the hymn was 23 years old when he wrote that. And he had gone through this revival, uh, gone under the teaching of George Whitfield, this great a preacher in the streets and in the fields and had converted. And because his heart was just so filled with God's love, he, he scribbled this thing down and it became the masterpiece that it is today. But shortly after this hymn was written, he wandered away from the faith completely for most of the rest of his life. He, he left the church, wanted nothing to do with it, wanted to to kind of go back to all his old habits, hangups, hurts, kind of completely disengage from Christian life and say, I don't really believe any of this anymore. Isn't that crazy? I mean, he didn't, he didn't only write, he was prone to wander. He experienced it for the majority of his life. And then one day he's riding in a stagecoach 
And there's a couple of different accounts as to what exactly happens, but they all basically say the same thing, is that there's a young lady sitting across from him, and whether she recognizes him immediately or is totally clueless is kind of where the variation is. But regardless, she's reading, and she says aloud to him that... uh, hey, I came across this, this passage and it's really meaningful to me. She says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. That really resonates with me. And the author of the hymn sitting across from her bursts into tears. And he says, Madam, I am the poor, unhappy man that wrote that hymn many years ago. And I would give a thousand worlds if I had them to enjoy the feelings that I had then. Isn't that powerful? And most of the accounts say that at that point, he got back into Christian community. He came back to the Lord. And that, the ending, we want, I want that to be verified because it makes for a good sermon illustration. But that ending is unverified. We know that it happened, but we actually don't know whether he went back in or not. What I do know is this, that this, this lady, this Christian community that he was in this stagecoach with challenged him deeply just by talking about the truths of God that were resonating with her heart. And it was powerful. And it was powerful. In what ways, Westside, are you to love, to engage, to be knit together, to be welded together with other brothers and sisters around you? Whether it's through Sunday morning or through small groups that you have or through one-on-one coffee meetings. Sometimes it's sharing your heart first, being vulnerable first, so that they feel like they can open up. Because it is in that back and forth, that sharpening of one another, as we, as we say God's truth, as we preach the gospel to each other out of love, that we ourselves are encouraged in our hearts. And so Paul's desire that this community under attack be knit together in God's sacrificial love is a community thing. It's a family project. And that's really critical. But the other element, the kind of flip side of this coin, is not only that Christ is their bond in community, but then if you have community but don't have the right answer, don't have the right truth, don't have the right gospel, then you're in big trouble. And so the flip side of that, the second thing I want to mention is that Christ is our treasure. Christ is our bond who brings us together and knits us together, welds us together in that sacrificial agape love. But he's able to do that because he's our treasure. And so Paul continues in verse 2 when he says, So uh, my desire is that you'd be encouraged, knit together in love, to reach all the riches, wealth, treasure of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul continues his train of thought by taking it from this heart level of internal focus to saying, Listen, if there's one answer, if there's one thing that you really need to make sure you know, if there's one thing that this hope, that this having your heart encouraged, that this understanding sacrificial love ought to do, it's to remind us that all the wealth, all the treasure, all the riches of the world are already yours in Christ. And I know that in, previously in Colossians, it already began to talk about the revelation of Christ. 
And it's easy enough to simply say, all right, everyone, you know, I want you to be encouraged today. Here's God's word. Jesus is the answer. We can even sing a song about it. Some of you are thinking it in your minds right now for the world today. And so go out there, trust him, have a good week. I mean, and that's true. It's a true thing. But sometimes when we think Jesus is the answer, it it sounds really shallow or really trite when compared to the things that we're really dealing with internally or the things we're seeing our neighbors or our friends or our family struggle with. And we say, well, I know that like Jesus is the answer, but if you tell me that, you know, someone close to you is dying, or if you tell me that, you know, your kids have been sick for week after week after week after week, and you don't think it's going to get any better, or you've just lost your job or the car in front of you just slammed on their brakes, and now you've got a big bill that you have to pay for, and just to get out and say, hey, but Jesus is the answer, right? I mean, it feels like more like a Hallmark card than a deep theological truth that impacts the way that we live. And so how do we get it from our head to our heart? Well, I think one way to think about it is whenever we see God telling us that something has been revealed to us, that should strike us already. Because think about it this way. God is pretty big, right? God is pretty big. He is beyond our comprehension. He is, we use fancy words like transcendent. He is so far out there and beyond my ability to know or feel or completely figure out an unsolvable puzzle. And the way he interacts with the world and does things can be incredibly confusing at times. And yet, when God says, in spite of all of those true things, I want to know you, and I want to be known by you, that changes everything. A God of the universe who's bigger than anything we can believe, comprehend, wrap our minds or hearts around, saying, I want to be with you, and I want you to know me, it changes everything. And I encourage you sometime, go through your Bible, you don't have to do this this afternoon, during the Super Bowl, but from beginning to end, sometime when you're reading through the Bible, every time you see God say something about revealing himself or showing up in a vision or a dream or appearing in person or saying, I want to know you or be known by you or I want you to be my people, I want to be, whenever you see that, God revealing himself, circle or underline or highlight that. And by the time you get to the end, I think you will be stunned with the number of times God says, in spite of all the crazy stuff that's happening in the world, in spite of your own sin, foolishness, inability to believe, rebellion, I want to be known by you and I want to know you. And that's what Paul is referencing here in Colossians. If you go back to Proverbs in the Old Testament chapter two, he says this, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. God wants us to know what is true. And in Colossians, he says, full assurance of understanding. But what does he say the key is to unlocking an understanding and knowing who God is? Sunday school answer, Jesus. That Jesus, in coming to this earth to live and to die for undeserving people, like you, like me, like the people at the church at Colossae and Laodicea, 
that he came to bridge that gap so that we might know him and be known by him. And understanding that Christ is our treasure changes the way we look at our own lives and the world around us. Maybe this was what Jesus was giving at. Actually, this is what Jesus was giving at when he told the parable of the kingdom and the hidden treasure in Matthew 13. Some of you might remember this. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and buys the field. Now, this is in contrast with what the world is telling us. There was an interview on 60 Minutes. I don't watch 60 Minutes very much. Okay, I'm not that guy. But I couldn't stop myself because Mandy Patinkin was on 60 Minutes. And a lot of you may not know who he is. He's been in a lot of movies, a lot of films, a great actor, uh, does music too. But probably best known for playing Anigo Montoya in The Princess Bride. Okay? And I'm not going to do the line right now. But he's interviewing. So obviously, like, I see The Princess Bride, and I'm like, oh, the movie's on TV. And then it's like, this is 60 Minutes. And I'm like, oh, okay. But then in the middle of this interviewer, Bob Simon says, Mandy, there's a ritual you go through every time you conduct an interview. Can you tell me about that? And Mandy says, I recite every name of every person that I've known who's passed on. And I do that because there's a line in the libretto of Carousel, and the line is, as long as there's one person on earth who remembers you, it isn't over. And that's deep. But then he says this, and I, it, it's a game I play that gives me, and the interviewer interrupts, wait a minute, it's a game? It's not a game, this is serious. And Mandy says, no, it's a game. The whole ball of wax is a game. Your life, my life, politics, economy, hunger. And Bob jumps in, by, by definition, a game has winners and losers. And Mandy says, yes, it does. I think we all lose in the end because we don't get to stay here forever. And that's a part of the game that I think is a profound flaw. And the interview continued, and I didn't. I was like, holy cow. Like, this is powerful. I have this guy admitting that he sees the futility of everything around him. And the only reason he's willing to do this ritual before interviews is because maybe it brings some kind of meaning, but he knows in his heart that that's not true. And he says it on national television. That it's all a game, but it's a meaningless one. In the end, we all lose. And that's profound. And that made me profoundly just respectful that he understood the futility of all, but then sad that there is no hope, that there is no peace, that there's no life, that the treasure that he has, instead of joyfully getting rid of it all because there's a treasure I found in a field and it's Jesus and it, and it answers the deep longing in my heart that nothing else can answer, He doesn't have that. And so it's empty and shallow and meaningless for him. And it's a powerful interview. I think you can still find it online because he goes on to kind of say that everything he worked for, all the fame, all the success, all the achievements don't really mean anything to him. And the interviewer is like, I I don't think he quite knows what to do with it because he's really honest about his heart. So when, when I'm honest about my heart that I'm prone to wander, the question is, what is the treasure that I'm holding on to? 
Or another way to think about it is what script is more important to me? If we're all writing our own stories, if all of our lives are a play or, or a canvas where I'm painting my picture that I want it to look like, and I want it my way, and I'm trying to find my meaning and be filled the way that, that makes sense to me, and I'm just trying to just leave me alone, let me have my journey, my experiences, because it's real and true to me, and I can find that happiness, what happens when something steps on that script or that painting that doesn't fit my vision? Angry, bitter, frustrated, lonely, depressed, But what if there's a script, a story, a tapestry, a painting that my story is part of, but that no matter what happens, I know and believe is going somewhere magnificent. And that there's a God over that who loved that picture of redemption, of life, of hope so much and wanted me to be part of it so deeply that he sent his son to die for me so that I could participate in that. That's a very different picture. That's a very different script. And so whose script am I living for? Mine or his? It kind of all comes together at the very end of this passage in verses four and five. When Paul says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments or maybe insert enticing words or, uh, you know, Things that really draw me in and sound good and feel good. Not like, oh, there's an enemy, there's a, there's a devil in the room. But there's something that is so sweet looking, so nice tasting that I want to be part of that. He says, I say this that no one may delude you with that. For though I'm absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Christ is our bond and Christ is our treasure. And Paul wants us to remember those things over and over and over that in Christian community that we get to experience being welded together, that we get to remind each other of that treasure. And so when Jason's having a hard day or when I'm having a hard day, we can remind each other of that treasure that we have that glitters more brightly, that lasts eternally compared to everything else around us that looks good but is going to be gone in an instant, in a heartbeat. And instead, we're to stand firm, we're to have good order. The words that Paul uses here are military words. It's a metaphor that's, you know, stand in your nice, tight lines. By the way, another community phrase, you're in an army together, not by yourself. And so stand firm together, have good order together. You know, bring your ranks close because there is a fight, there is a battle. They're trying to delude you, they're trying to take you away, they're trying to entice you. Your heart is prone to wander, but there is something far richer and far greater. I want to end by sharing uh, a personal story that I don't really want to share, but I will. When I was in college, I looked really good. I mean, like physically I didn't, but spiritually I did. I was involved with inner varsity. I led a guy's Bible study. I ran sound for the meetings. Uh, You know, I loved, uh, I I, I did love Jesus, but I thought I loved him a lot more than I actually did. Uh, And I went to church sometimes uh, and I was engaged at the time. And my fiance lived in the Springs and I still lived up in Greeley where I was going to school. And I thought, you know, life, like I've got this kind of figured out. I'm kind of set to go. And I don't know about you, but whenever I think I'm content and like I've got life figured out, is when the prone to wander comes in. 
So there was a girl in one of my classes. I, we were in the same degree program together. She was in a lot of my classes. A pretty girl, a nice Christian girl, uh, and we, we were really close friends. Uh, but there was always kind of this, guys, you know what I'm saying, and I think ladies, you understand this too a little bit, this, I, like I'm committed to my fiance, I love Jesus, but every once in a while there's this hint of like, but that's kind of interesting too. And one night... Late at night, I found myself at her house to study for a test in her room alone. That was one of the dumbest things I've ever done in my life. Now, praise be to God that there was some kind of divine intervention that when things were starting to head somewhere, it stopped before anything could happen physically. I mean, it was happening in my heart, let's be honest. But physically nothing happened, and I got out of there and that was it. That was over. But I remember in that moment thinking, how does, how does good, awesome, super spiritual Doug end up in this girl's room late at night? Like, that can't happen. That, it shouldn't be able to happen. But I was prone to wander. My Christian community at that point had all but vanished as everyone had moved away but me. I was no longer connected at InterVarsity. I was on my own, and I was just trying to kind of finish my degree and get out of there so I could go get married and be back where, where my plans were, where my script was. And in that moment, I was almost complete, well, I was completely off script, off my script. What I had planned hadn't worked the way I wanted. What mattered in that moment that I really needed to understand was that God is a God who binds us together. That Jesus is is the one that binds us together. And that if I had had people, including myself, speaking the truth that Jesus is my treasure, not this momentary moment, this momentary circumstance, this sweet temptation, I never would have been there in the first place. I want to encourage you to think and pray about your own heart about your own life. What are the areas? Where are the places that you feel like your script is under attack and you need to surrender that and say, it's not about my will, my kingdom, my wants, my desires. It's about yours. And it's not about me doing this on my own and alone, but with this awesome community that I want to be welded together, that I want to be protected, that I want to be in good order, not by my own strength, but because of the treasure, the wealth, the riches that are found in Jesus Christ. And if those things are true, how then does that impact the way we look at the world around us and our neighbors? Let me pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, our King, our Lord, beyond all comprehension, who transcends our very understanding of the world and universe, And yet, a God who wants to be our God, who wants us to be his people, a God who loves us so much that Emmanuel, God with us, is a reality we understand in Jesus Christ. I pray today that our hearts would be encouraged, that what we know is true in your word becomes what we believe, that we're able to sharpen one another and be knit closer together, that you would be our treasure now and always. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.